you would, open your Bible to 1 John chapter 5 one last time. <laughs> yeah, I've, I've, I've burned my street cred on this being the last time, huh? <laughs> the Lord does work in mysterious ways, you never know. We come under the encouragement one more time of John in telling us to keep ourselves from idols. We learned last week, gave you the argument, I believe that, that really what John is aiming at there is not idolatry in the form that we often think in the outworking fruit of sexual sin and uh, money and um, gluttony and all of those perversions of God's gifts, but really what John is aiming at is that we would be warned about false teachers. John has written in chapter 4, uh, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. He's written concerning those that that he knows will pervert the, the faith. And he wants us to know that we belong to the living God. And so he gives us these four veins of, of thought to constantly come back to. Uh, that we should guard our own testimony and our own walk with the Lord before him by asking ourselves do we love God? Do we love his church? Do we love the truth? That is, do we love theology and sound doctrine? Do we guard? We cling to in the fashion that we are concerned about obeying God the commandments that He has given us. And the answer that we came to last week is the only way that we will ever answer yes and amen to those questions is when God by His grace reveals Himself to us and we come to know and to believe in the living God. So we must lean into those questions yet again as we come this final time. John writes in the second chapter, verse 26, I write these things to you about those who are trying to deceive you. Again, I just want to drill in the idea that John is concerned not just in chapter 4, but all throughout the letter, the entire context is false teachers. But the anointing that you have received from him abides in you, and you have no need that anyone should teach you. But as his anointing teaches you about everything, as is true, and is true, and is no lie, just as it has taught you, abide in him. Now, some will take this particular passage to mean that we need to just ignore all teaching. We don't need teachers. But we know in Ephesians chapter 4 that we're told that God gifts the church teachers, theologians, men who He has used mightily throughout the church age. This verse is not an encouragement to ignore those who teach rightly. It's a warning about those who teach false doctrine. It's interesting to me the number of people who name the name of Christ, 
who have come to a point, and I think in Protestant veins of thought, where we feel we have license because we don't come under the authority of men and we do put the authority of God's Word above all things in, in the life of the church, then we have this idea, well, then we need to just completely ignore uh, the church fathers and those who have taught throughout uh, the, the centuries. And, and, and they, they ultimately... Uh, people in that vein will say that, well, we don't need the thoughts of men. And in some respect, that is true. But again, we have to reckon with the fact that the Spirit of God has been working in His church for now 2,000 years. Let me just illustrate for a second uh, why it is so important, and then I'm going to move on to a, a second illustration, that we understand that the the concerning what is right doctrine, we should look to the church throughout the ages. Um, we, we, how many of you here today believe that Paul was an apostle sent by God? Amen, right? We believe that. But we also know that there are probably letters that Paul wrote that in God's providence were not included in the canon of Scripture. So what if those letters were, you, you know, we're finding, people find in archaeology all the time, um, letters that are held up as being Gospels uh, or, or whatever, and, and then there has to be theological work done to refute those. And there is this question of what if we came to a point where one of Paul's other letters were found? What would we do with that? Would we accept that as another inspired letter for the church? And the answer is no. And the reason is it, it, Paul is an apostle of God, but the way that the Spirit has woven together the canon is that he has revealed the books that are ultimately inspired by God throughout uh, the, the, the formation of the Bible such that even if we were to receive a new letter today from Paul, my argument would be is it's not a Catholic letter. It's not something that the church has wrestled through and thought through throughout the, the, the centuries. And my point in that is that we need to remember that, that ultimately the Word of God comes through the prophets and the apostles as the church has recognized, and the church doesn't have authority over the Word of God, but God delivers His Word to the church, and the church in its, um, in its work in the first centuries acknowledged what is and is not uh, fit for the canon of Scripture, what ultimately God has delivered as His final authority. So, so we need to acknowledge first God's authority through the apostles, but we also want to acknowledge the reality that when we come to thought, veins of thought, like the attributes of God that we've been working through since, I think, September, it's right and good to filter through and to read through Authors like Calvin and Knox and R.C. Sproul and Stephen Sharnock and Thomas Watson, and I could go on and on and on. Why? Why are these things helpful? And the answer is because the Spirit has been at work in the men that God has called to the, do the work of the ministry for ages now. And so when we come to, friends, we are the beneficiaries. When we come to veins of thought about who God is, 
I think one of the worst things we can do is turn on our favorite TV preacher. Because often, the aim of so much of what's going on in American religion today is to fill the 45-minute time slot perfectly and to attract a crowd, not to herald the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But we need to come under the teaching of good teachers. You see, I think John is warning us about false teachers both in verse 21 and in chapter 4 and in chapter 2 and throughout all of his letter. That's ultimately the banner is beware of false teachers. And so by implication, what we would also have to hear from John is beware of false teachers, but we know God's going to give teachers, so know which ones are faithful to the faith once for all delivered to the saints and live in light of the Word of God as they herald it faithfully. Now again, if, if what you hear in me saying that is that we should subject ourselves to the spiritual authority of man in the way that they can say whatever they want without hinging it to the Word of God, without having clear moorings in the Word of God, and ultimately, Lord, over our lives, you're not hearing me rightly. What we expect is that we come under sound teaching that accords with the Word of God. But the problem is that every false teacher that has ever risen throughout the church age has stood and said, I believe the Word of God. And then they've just gone on to distort and manipulate and trash the faith that is really once for all delivered to the saints. What you find in true teachers is men who will speak of God being a spirit, wise in all of His providence, all-knowing, all-powerful, righteous, good, unchanging, a God who Chad rightly preached several weeks ago is thrice holy, a God who is angry at sin every day, that His disposition towards sin has not wavered, in one respect throughout the ages. The world may change. Our political systems may change. The church in all of its outer uh, working may in some respect change. But the God that we serve, rem- serve remains against sin to this very moment. If we have talked about God in these terms then, and we have over the past several weeks, it's only because faithful men have been talking in these terms for centuries as the Spirit of God has revealed to them what He is saying through His prophets and apostles. See, the whole idea is that the the whole idea that we have in our day that, well, we don't need teachers at all is really just an arrogant illusion. Because God has said that He will work through the teachers that He gives. I think I've spoken about this, and I don't want to belabor the point, but the enlightenment which we all live downstream from. And I'll hear things like this from time to time. Jay, I just don't think that we need to concern ourselves with the teaching that has come out of the church. I just believe my Bible. Good. So does your Mormon friend. So does your Jehovah's Witness friend. 
What do they say that it believes? And, and here's the reality. That attitude of, I just believe my Bible, I don't think it's all wrong. I think that there's something healthy and noble and right about that. But friends, we all live downstream from, from the Enlightenment period. And um, one of the major figures, and I'm not going to pin all of the Enlightenment on Immanuel Kant, but he's one of the great thinkers of that time period. And what you have to understand about the church leading up to that point is that, that faithful pastors would have, and from almost every denomination, used what is, what, what's referred to as catechisms. That is a helpful tool in a question and answer form relating to the Bible about what does the Bible really teach. That way, and if the Jehovah's Witness shows up at your front door, you have a framework as a layperson to reason out what they're telling you. You have some doctrinal undergirding. Well, Immanuel Kant comes along and he really kind of basically pushes against that entire idea. And what he says is, you need to merely think for yourself. Stop depending on everyone else. And here's the thing. Immanuel Kant, in his reasoning, really is, I think, helpful at some level. Every pastor that is worth their salt will encourage you, think on your own. Reason through this. Believe because you have understood, not merely because it's in a catechism or a book or, or whatever. There, there is a reasoning. But the way in which the Enlightenment and specifically Kant push against this, here, here's the introductory uh, paragraph, a couple of sentences to an article that Kant wrote uh, on what is enlightenment. He says, Enlightenment is a person's emergence from self-sustained dependency. Dependency is the inability to make use of one's own intellect without the supervision of another. One's dependency is self-substantiated when its cause lies not in the defect of intellect but in the lack of its decisiveness and courage to use one's mind without direction from another. And then he, he spells out the Latin phrase that means dare to know. Have the courage to make use of your own mind. And this is the statement of the Enlightenment. Friends, how many times in your workplace, in school, and I believe so much in the church, have we heard that refrain? I'm going to use my own mind. I'm just going to believe the Bible. And here's the tricky thing is there is some, again, virtue to believe the Bible, study the Bible. But if you come away with a meaning of the Bible that those who have been called to do the work of the ministry have absolutely rejected for the past 2,000 years, I don't think it's them that have the problem. It's you. Do we depend upon teachers? Well, we depend upon the Holy Spirit ultimately. But we receive throughout the church age the gift of those men that God has has, has called to stand and proclaim the faith once for all delivered to the saints. Unfortunately, I think that we have bought into a Kantian way of, of viewing the work of theology and doctrine. And I think it's partially what John is actually writing against. 
Here's a better way, I think, for us to understand the dilemma if your brain is starting to go, whoa. Um, Immanuel Kant would say, don't depend on teachers, depend upon you. But I want to draw us back to what does the Bible say? Again, good Bible uh, expositors, teachers are always going to encourage you to think on your own and to reason through the Scriptures and to hold on to your faith personally. Um, so there's a little bit of a false dichotomy that he's introducing. But let's think about what is said in Acts chapter 17. You know, if you've ever driven by a church that's called Berean Baptist Church, there's a reason. Acts chapter 17, starting in verse 10, the brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were, and really another translation is, now these Bereans were more noble than those in Thessalonica. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the Scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Now there's something there that you might think is trivial, but I think is so important. And that is that Bereans, Jews, is not in the singular, it's in the plural. There was not a Berean. There wasn't just an old boy that said, I believe my Bible and I got it right. There was an entire community in which theological, biblical understanding came into being. Now here's my question for LifePoint in the year 2022. Have we been encouraged to be Bereans in the sense not only of anchoring ourselves in the Word, but also knowing faithful teachers that God has given us throughout the centuries. To have a Berean heart is more than I just believe the Bible. It's I believe the Bible and I believe that He has been making it clear to the saints that He has purchased with His blood through the working of the Spirit for 2,000 years. And I'm going to lean into what they have gleaned so that I might check my own interpretation. We ultimately find then that to dispel false teaching, which John is against and why he's writing about idolatry, we need the entire body of Christ to help Morris. And here's the thing. In my time as pastor of this church, there have been times that I will quote theologians, and I've, had, I've felt this weight, well, I need to say some theologian, because there are certain theologians' names that if they are Googled, it will cause people's heads to spin because for, thousands, or for hundreds of years now, we as Americans have been taught by Immanuel Kant, think on your own. But that is nothing more than a distortion because it's think on your own, and then pastors come and on the side dump things onto the faith that aren't true. And are never held account to the wider body of theological work throughout the church age. And beloved, let me just settle this today. That's why I quote people like John Calvin and Martin Luther and Augustine. Not to idolize those men, but to acknowledge the work of the Spirit among the saints throughout the church age. And here's the thing, from today on, there's no apologies for that. It's the right way to approach the pulpit. And if someone comes to the pulpit and says, well, God's just revealed things to me, I don't need anything else. Do them and yourself a favor and tell them, sit down. (sighs) 
We are responsible. Friends, do you not see that we are headed for a day where we will gather with all of the saints around the throne of grace? And it's not going to be a day where just believe whatever you think. The question is, are we really believing the faith once for all delivered to the saints? And false teaching has always been a problem. It's why Jude had to write, and he wants to write in Jude verse 3 to encourage in, 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 in concert with that common faith and salvation that we all share. And he says, Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to, rep- to write appealing to you to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And actually, the better translation is in the NASB, and it is, Beloved, I am writing to you not just to contend, but to epicaruso, to earnestly contend, to fight with everything in you, life point. Not to, to diminish the faith once for all delivered to the saints, but to hold on to it faithfully. And yes, even in 2022. So that was the longest introduction that I've ever preached. Let us, in light of it, consider one more attribute in light of John's teaching and the historic understanding of the faith once for all delivered to the saints. And this is an issue that I think, and it's not an issue, it's a characteristic of an attribute of Almighty God, and so it is of utmost importance, and yet it's so maligned. And that is the understanding of the love of God. Often the love of God is understood as nothing more than the unconditional favor of God to everyone universally. God is nothing more than a gigantic care bear looking down at creation with warm and fuzzy feelings. That is not the love of God. That's blasphemy to think in that direction. God's love, in fact, is not unconditional. And I can prove that very quickly if you are a Christian this morning. Because for God to set His love upon you, there had to have been two conditions. One was that a perfect sacrifice had to be born into this world apart from sin. That is the Lord Jesus Christ. And second condition is that that perfect uh, individual, the incarnate second member of the Trinity, had to be put to death in your place. The love of God is not unconditional. It comes with conditions, but praise be to a holy God that He has met those conditions in our Savior. So ultimately, we come this morning, what is then the love of God? Twice in 1 John chapter 4, we see the love of God uh, mentioned. Verse 6, we are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us, but... By, am I in the right verse? I'm not in the right verse. Verse 8. Now let's just finish reading. By this we know that the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and whoever loves has been born of God and knows God. Anyone who does not love does not know God, because God is love. And then in verse 16, so we have come to know and to believe that the love that God has for us. God is love, and whoever abides in love abides in God, and God abides in Him. What does God is love then mean? Well, first, let me tell you what it doesn't mean. 
It does not mean that love is God. And that is the modern construct. That everything is just this flattened, uh, idealistic way of God, God is love means that He loves universally, exponentially, all the time, and isn't against anything. That's not true. Uh, love being God would mean that every warm and fuzzy feeling that we have that comes along ultimately is given uh, from a divine, as a divine gift. And that's not true. Friends, here's the reality. I've known some people that have loved really well. In fact, in my subjective human opinion, my wife and the way that she loves our family, my daughter last night, um, I was telling I was talking to my wife, and I said something. I don't even remember what it was, but my, my little girl piped up and looked me in the face, and she said, Daddy, you do remember that none of this works, meaning our household, without Mama. And I'm like, yeah, I do. And she goes, because Mama loves us so much, and she takes care of us. And, and Ellie stops, and she goes, she really takes care of you. <laughs> True. She, she does. She does a great job. I can think about, and, and you probably can too, grandparents that loved me so well in the Lord. Beware of looking at those great gifts of love that are outside of us and conflating that love, as good as it can be in the horizontal plane, with the love of God because God's love is completely different than the love we receive from other people. And also... So it doesn't mean love is God. It also does not mean that God is only love. Like that is His only attribute. And and friends, I would tell you that most American modern preaching, if it's not explicitly stated that way, it's veiled by the fact that love is the only thing that's heralded. But our God is not only a God who possesses infinite love. He is holy. He is spirit. He is goodness. He is righteous. He is just. Some moderns sing and talk about God having reckless love. That's nonsense. Because it is removed from God doing all things according to His omniscience. His knowing everything. He's not reckless. He's on a mission to bring about what He intends to bring about. God's love is ultimately present in all of His other attributes. I'm going to quote one of those dead theologians, Thomas Watson, who said, without God's love, none of His other attributes would be beautiful, but love sweetens all of His attributes. When we think about the wrath of God, when we think about the justice of God, when we think about the power of God, the wonderment is that we know in the simplicity of God that His love is tied to all of those things. God is love, but God is also spirit. And John tells us that God is also light. That is, He is holy. So what is God is love? What does that mean? Well, in the context of what John is saying here, and we've dealt with this already, I just say all of this in in, in reminding. Uh, He is saying, look, if someone loves their brother or sister in Christ, if you love the church, you can be assured that you're a Christian, that being a reality, because ultimately what you find in loving other believers for having been believers is that your essence, your nature has been changed. And and he leans on, as the, the proof of that, God's essence and nature. So when 
When John says God is love, what he is saying is love is essentially who he is. You can't separate love apart from God. First John chapter 4, verse 8 and verse 16 tell us that this is God's nature to be loving. Love is not merely a relational thing that God has with those outside of Himself or an activity in which He engages uh, His creation, but love is God's very being. Some would read... John chapter 3, our call to worship this morning, and use it as a proof text to a universal atonement. That is that Jesus died for every single person on the face of the planet. That's absolute nonsense. Because what is really... Well, let me read the verse first. John three sixteen through 18 For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son for, that whoever believes in Him would not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through Him. Whoever believes in Him is not condemned. That's the group of people that God saves in Christ. But whoever does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. The love of God cannot be reduced to what He has done for us. Rather, what John is saying, that the cross of Christ reveals the depth of the character of God. The essence of God in the cross is displaying not just merely what He's done, but who He is eternally before the cross ever came into existence. That's the weight of the love of God. He has demonstrated to the world, the entire world, both saved and unsaved. Do you know what they deserve? Not the love of God, but the wrath of God. Eternal judgment. And the glorious declaration, and here's something to mark in the margin of John 3.16. Beloved, contrary to so much Baptist nonsense, John 3.16, I mean that with all love, is not an invitation, it's a declaration. It is heralding the reality that the triune God has displayed His love to the cosmos that while He should have annihilated every generation of humanity, He allowed His only begotten Son to be put on a cross to display the essence of His being and not to save all, but to save some. Isn't that a joy? That God in His essence is absolute, undiluted love in every aspect of His being. The wrath that will be poured out on unrepentant humans. And if you're here today and not believing, I love you enough to tell you, friend, that's you. Apart from Christ, run to Him. That wrath is not an act of a God who is just pouting like we would in our wrath. That act of wrath is an expression of divine love. He loves in all that He does. John 3.16 is about an eternal display of the love of God. And this has huge implications into our understanding of God. Ultimately, in the simplicity of God's being, we understand that He is without parts, and we've talked about this, without body, parts, or passions. God's love is not a part of who He is. 
His love is the essence of all that he does and all that he is. God is pure love. God is love, true, but 1 John chapter 1, verse 5 tells us that God is also light. So God is love implies that there is no malice. There is no unreasonable hatred in his being. God's love is also, we spent an entire Sunday talking about the aseity of God so that I could tee this statement up. God's love is not from you because of something in you. His love is, ah, say, from Himself. It flows out of His being and His character. God's love doesn't arise from something outside of Him. It's why the, the whole idea that God looks down the tunnel of time and saves people based on any condition in them is repugnant to the Gospel because it belies the reality of His love being merely from His character. He doesn't need anything from His creation to love. And we should all say yes and amen to that reality. God's love is also infinite because He is infinite. Friends, the reality this morning, if you drug yourself to church thinking I am a marginal Christian just on the cusp of even being called a Christian, you're not a Christian because you've done something. You're a Christian because of the love of Almighty God. And friends, the reality is when you consider the love of God, often this is what we do. Chad, thanks for the questions this morning. Nobody else might have needed them. I did. Thinking through the reality, I'm a sinner. I failed him this week. I've done things that are, are not pleasing to him. Boy, that'll stir up the, the gossip tank. Um, but it's a reality. And if we're not careful, we'll believe the subtle lie of Satan that says, boy, God has put so much love into you and you, you messed up again. I mean, how much more love do you really think that he's got, Cam? Friends, the reality is that you could as soon drink all of the water in every ocean and lake and river and tributary that envelops the face of the earth today, you could do that, more of a, there's more of a possibility of that being a reality in your life than you exhausting the love of God. It's infinite, without end. So when God sets, this is also why, it's why listen, the, the, the kind of, 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 of theology that tells you, look, if you sin too much, God's going to pull your salvation, you can lose your salvation. Ultimately, that centers on man, and it distorts the reality of God, because if you're saved by the love of God and His redemptive work, you can't exhaust his resources in bringing what he intends to bring to completion to pass. That's fantastic. That's the love of God. Now here's the thing. This is what I know, and I'm not picking on my wife when I say this. I really believe she has loved me better than anybody on the face of the planet. But men, if you're in here, you've all learned how to warm yourself by the fire of your wife's wrath without getting burned. You know, you can get just as close to just setting her off as possible. I saw something this week, I sent it to her, that said, I didn't mean to tick you all, or to push all of your buttons. I was trying to find the mute button. 
As much as my wife loves me, she doesn't have an inexhaustible source of being able to love. Which is also a good uh, relationship, just anecdotal, uh, outworking downstream of your theology. Don't look to people to ultimately fulfill your need to be loved. That can only be accomplished through Christ. Since God's love was essential, it is who He is. We have to reckon with, and we'll move on to the next point, that the, the love of God is who He is in His essence. That means it is part of who He was before the foundation of the world. And so in, the real, in, in light of that reality, we need to understand that the love of God is not only essential, it also existed in Him prior to the, the creation of the world, so it's also Trinitarian. The Bible tells us that God was sufficient unto Himself without creating anything that has been made, including you and I. The Bible tells us that the Father has loved His Son before the foundation of the world and they share in essence and glory all of their attributes. And and the Son ultimately submits to the Father and the Spirit anoints the Son in an expression that, that God is well pleased with the Son, what, what we see in the whole narrative, and I'm not going to illustrate this at length, is, is that inside of the Trinitarian framework of the Godhead, inside of who God is, love exists perfectly. There is no need, there is no, there is no um, want of love inside of the Trinity, which is why it is absolutely nuts to say things like, well, God wants to have a relationship with you. I, from time to time, I get these uh, videos of preachers who will say things like, regardless, and it's really big in our day to, to put big sins, you know, uh, and whatever that means, uh, before a congregation and say, God just wants to have a relationship with you, and then enumerate another sin. And if that's true, God just wants to have a relationship with you. That is so man-centered and pukish, I can't even put words to it. Because what we should be doing is what the Bible does. And that is to declare sin as sin and to use the words the Bible does. Not God wants something from you, but you need something from Him. And that is forgiveness. Repent and believe. That's why I think so much of the church is weak today because we have a God who we will, we will herald His love, but we don't understand it at all. We don't understand that the love of God comes to us as a sheer act of kindness and benevolence, not because there is anything in us that is lovable. Sarah, that was a good time to amen your pastor. You know me well. So the love of God is His essence. It is also Trinitarian. And so then the question comes thus. Well, but does God love everyone? I thought there, there are passages that seem to say that God is loving to everyone. Isn't that true? And the answer is yes, but there's distinctions. And we've talked about this, but I think they bear repeating a thousand times over. Theologically, um, theologians throughout the church age have really understood the love of God to be divided into three constituent components. One is His beneficent love. 
And his beneficent love is that his disposition, because of his essential love, because it is who he is, his beneficence is that he has a disposition of love towards everyone. He doesn't divide people into groups and say, well, I'll I'll love this one, but not this one, and and that kind of thing. He has a, a general kind of disposition of love towards the whole world, and it's expressed through his love of benevolence. That is his kindness towards all. And his beneficent love turning into benevolent love, come, uh, it, the distinction there is beneficence is his attitude, his disposition, his benevolence are the acts that he ultimately is carrying out. Like the reality that the sun came up this morning and it shines upon a lost and fallen human world. Um, that the rain will come, that the crops will come in, and, and, and to people who are outside of the body of Christ. And so does God. Here's the economy of the Bible. And, and you have to reckon with this. Again, think on your own. Does God, when He commands in the garden not to eat of the tree of uh, knowledge of good and evil, and, and man rebels, is He required to show love towards the world? And the answer is no. He owes us wrath. But in his loving disposition to all of humanity, he has shown kindness in the world season after season, moment after moment, in all of the natural cycles that he set up in the world have still come to pass that human beings have been able to flourish on the earth. So that brings us to the final um, vein of theological thought on the love of God, and that is his love of complacency. Now, when we think of complacency, we think of self-satisfaction, kind of smug indifference, a a, a sort of blasé type of attitude, but to understand that word historically and its its import, complacency is, is that in which someone finds great joy or delight in what they have done. God finds great joy and delight in His own love, specifically and particularly not in any one of us, even as believers this morning, but specifically and particularly in His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, and the work that His Son has done to adopt all that the Father has given to Him. So there is, does God love everyone? Yes, God loves in in beneficence in His disposition because it's His essential and triune character. He loves benevolently in allowing you to draw your next breath. But friend, if you're here this morning and you have not repented and believed on the Lord Jesus Christ, the only way to have His special or His complacent, His redeeming love in your life is repent and believe. And that only happens through the power of the Spirit of God. So does God love everyone? Yes, but we need to understand the definition of that. And ultimately, when we do, it doesn't diminish anything. It ultimately, I believe, adds to our worship. Because we in the body of Christ understand God didn't love us because He needed anything. God didn't love us because, boy, He was hard up for a relationship. God loves us. Ultimately, for His own end, His own glory, and knowing that He has set His love particularly in His complacent love of being pleased with His Son upon His church throughout all of the ages, that should give us reason to rejoice and to worship. It should fuel everything that we do in here. So what we also need to understand is this. When you hear a preacher 
or a Bible blogger or a nudneck on the internet say God just loves everybody the same way. Mark down in your mind that that is wholesale blasphemy. Because he doesn't love every human being in the same exact way. He calls every human to repent and to believe in his son, the one in whom he truly loves and is well pleased. You see, the reality is when we come to the love of God and we herald it as though there were no conditions in his love, it ultimately calls no one to repent. It calls no one to believe. It causes no one to change. But the gift of the mercy of the love of God in our life, beloved Christian, is that we've been caused to repent, to believe, and by His grace we are being changed through His merciful love. God hates sin, and He's always been against it. One of the things, and this is an application of what we've learned this morning, is we live in a day and age, don't we, where the, the mantra is, well, love is love. And in one particular area, and I'm going to try and be careful because there are kids in the room, there will be veins of, of, of argument that say, look, love is love. As long as there's two consenting adults, it's all love. I'm not an angry Baptist preacher that's against romantic expression, but if what is called love is done contrary to God's ordained context for that activity, it ceases to be love. And if it is outside the bounds, and here's the thing, that can happen in heterosexual expression outside the context of marriage. And I think the church has gone uh, to the point that we're comfortable with calling that even love, and it's not. But then there are other forms that people will say, well, love is love, and the problem there in those kinds of expressions is that when love is done outside the bounds of how God has created the world, it not only ignores His complacent and His commanding love, it ignores His love of benevolence in the fact that, that you are using your body against the design that God has in the natural outworking of the universe. Love is not simply love. Don't buy into that lie. Let us apply then the essential Trinitarian love of God to where we finish today. I'm going to try and keep the commitment that this really is the last Sunday here. Verse 21, again, is all about false teachers. Little children, keep yourselves from idols. He's begging the church in that final declaration, keep yourself from Gnostic heretics. They will tear you apart. Beloved, keep yourself from Armenian heresy. It will divide the church. Keep yourself from charismatic chaos. Keep yourself from nonsensical, man-centered doctrine. It will ultimately bring you to ruin. I think what John is really telling us in, in, in verse 21 
It's not without context. And you have to start to know the author you're reading to really get the full import of his words. And what, what he's saying here is he's watched men come into the church and they've claimed to, to love God and they've claimed to love doctrine and they've claimed to love the church and they've claimed to, to keep the commandments. But what, jo- what John has watched over time is these men have brought in their own ideas and they've held them before the congregation that God has bought with the blood of His Son. That's what's going on here, beloved. And I think if we really knew John, he would weep in front of us this morning over the reality that he knows there are men who will come in and hold idols before the church so that he can make merchandise of the people in the congregation, abuse them and use them for their own end purposes. And instead of building up the body of Christ, which is what a preacher is called to, they will ultimately distort and draw people away from the triune love of God. That's what's going on here. And so what what do we do? Well, I think John would say, well, you answer the questions first for yourself. Do you love God? Do you love His church? Do you love the truth? Are you willing to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints? And do you guard the commandments that are so perspicuous in His Word? And then he would pivot and say, but beloved, those questions I've asked of you Use them and ask them of any man who would stand and teach you of the things of God. Is this a man who loves God, who loves his church, who will, even if it costs him having to have the hide of a rhinoceros, as Charles Spurgeon says, preach the truth once for all delivered to the saints and let the chips fall where they may? And is this an individual who in his own life guards the commandments of Almighty God? You see, the true teachers that God sends and they'll come throughout the ages will be distinguished not by how eloquent they are and all of their schemes and all of their plans and all of those peripheral things that for whatever reason we as humans we like to fixate on. But true teachers will be known by what they love. By the love they have of the Lord and of His church and of His truth and of His clear commands. They won't come and push people away from loving God, away from loving His church, away from loving the truth, and away from His commandments. They will come and engage you in the doctrines that have been once for all delivered to the saints. So then it boils down to this. John is encouraging us, be careful about who you allow to lead and to preach and to teach. And it isn't, is he a good guy? Friends, there are a thousand false teachers that will come into your hospital room and they will smile at you and they will shake your hand and they will be perfect in their, in their outer appearance and all of those things. You know, those super white teeth, that freaks me out. Um, all of those things, not really. But it's just sentimental hogwash. And they do all of that like, you know, a matador that holds a red flag over here and allows the bull to run by so that they can do what they want to next, and that is jab you. And I see it all the time, and it breaks my heart because I see people that I love lift up men, and I go, that man really hates you, and you can't even see it. 
So you know what it all boils down to, really? Well, it boils down to the four questions. You, you have to love the Lord, His church, truth, and, and, and you have to guard the commandments of God in your life. But, but I believe, really, the one that we should look at in our day is does this man genuinely pursue right doctrine? Whatever the cost. I mean, Paul wrote to Titus in chapter 2, the very first verse. Do you remember what he said to Titus? Because there were false teachers there too. And it wasn't just, Titus, think for yourself. And tell everybody in the church, everybody have your own opinion and we'll all be great. He says, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. The way to distinguish true and false teachers is what they believe about the love of God and how they live in light of it. And I'll just finish with this anecdote from the Word of God. If the question is idolatry, and it is, and if the idol is false teaching, and, and it is, then if Jesus were to stand here with us this morning in John, What is it that Christ would say to all of his shepherds, regardless of denomination or background this morning? What, what is it that Jesus preeminently, if, if he says, yes, I believe this man loves me, what is it that he will ask that man to do for the saints? Turn in your Bibles to John 21, and I'll wait until you get there. John 21. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? And he said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And he said, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, Tend my sheep. And he said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him a third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Feed my sheep. What is it that God wants those that He has called to ministry to do. To do the things that people like. To put on an entertaining show. To agree with everyone's political viewpoint. To coddle everyone's denominational background. No. Men who are truly called to keep you from idols will feed you with the substantive doctrines that God has delivered to His church, not only in this age, but in all of the ages that He has worked in the lives of His saints. Little children then, keep yourself from idols, for God loves His church and His glory above everything in all of creation. May He be praised forever and ever. Would you pray with me?
Father God, we come in light of Your great love this morning, in light of Your majesty and the reality that You have loved us so well, and You've done it theologically through Your Word. And Father, this morning we acknowledge that it is Your essence to love. And so in love receive what we pray this morning. Our sins are more than the wide sea sand. But where sin abounds, Your grace is more abundant. Help us to look to the cross of Your beloved Son where You display the essence of Your triune love to us. Help us to to, to ultimately hear the whisper of what You have done, that our sins are forgiven. Help us to remember that Your grace flows from heaven and it flows unendingly to those that You love with Your complacent, special love. Grant us the privilege more and more to prize being able to come together here to pray. To come to You bold, knowing that we are soiled in sin. To find pardon in Your blood alone. To pray to You. And to know that in prayer, You are the path in which our feet tread. You are the latch upon the door of our lips. The light that shines through our eyes. The music of our ears. The marrow of our understanding. The strength of our will. The power of our affection. And the sweetness of our memory. May the manner of our prayer be always wise, humble, submissive, obedient, scriptural, and Christ-like. Give us unwavering faith that supplications are never in vain, and if we seem not to obtain our petitions, we know that we have richer answers, surpassing all that we could ask or think, knowing ultimately that in Your divine providence, we live in a world that is best as it could be for those who love You and who are called according to Your purpose. Father, might Your love Seal us and guard us from idols through the working of Your Spirit. It's in Christ's name we pray.